morning. My name is Derek, one of the pastors here. We're going to be in Acts 13, so turn there if you would. If you need a Bible, there's some in the back. Go ahead and grab one uh, here at Common Ground. We really want to teach the Scripture. We say this often that uh, whoever is teaching or a pastor is not the authority, but God's Word is the authority, and so this is what we're going to look at. Um, have you ever had one of those days where you realize you're just grumpy? One of those days you're just irritable, and then you realize you kind of like it? Um, and you're just looking for a reason to be mad, or you're looking for that person so you can snap on him. I mean, maybe I'm the only one this happens to every now and then. Uh, but how about, have you known somebody within the church that's kind of always that way? I mean, I've been in the church since I was a kid, and it seems like often there's, there's some individuals that just, they just like to be grumpy all the time. Um, they look for something. If they don't have a, a, a battle with somebody, they try and find one. Um, or the kids, you know what I mean? Like kids are getting too loud and they're um, kind of that picture of, of just being angry. You know, we as Christians, these songs that we're singing are, are just so perfect. But we as Christians, when we really understand the gospel, although we might, you know, struggle with a grumpy day, we're not to be those type of people. When we really understand what God has done, we get the Holy Spirit and we get this joy this peace that passes understanding because it's God in us. And we're going to see that some today about how there's something different about true biblical Christianity, something different from every other religion. You know, every other religion, every other worldview, I can understand. In fact, I would, if I was in those, I would probably be that way, grumpy all the time. There's something different about the Christian faith. Not only is it true, but there's something that sets it apart from every other worldview. Uh, when I was 22, fresh out of college, uh, I, I gave myself a test. I asked myself the question, which maybe you've asked, or a lot of people do, of, you know, why, you know, most people will grow up believing whatever their family believed or, or you know, the part of the world they grew up in. So how can we, growing up as Americans in the church, how can I claim to have the truth when there's, say, uh, uh, somebody who grew up in, in Iran or Iraq or whatever, and all they knew was Islam, how can I say that I'm right and they're wrong? And so I gave myself a little bit of a test. And the test was to step out of believing the Bible, step out of faith in God, and, and then pursue what might be true. What conclusion would I come to if I didn't grow up in the church? And I just looked at all the religions, all the worldviews, and measured them. Would I come to the same conclusion? Now, it wasn't a fair test because I loved Jesus. It wasn't a fair test because I believed in the Bible and I had the Holy Spirit. But it was helpful really to step outside and then start to look at it from other points of view and, and talk to the people that I worked with that didn't believe in God. And here's what I, I landed on, obviously, that the Bible's true and it's the most logical. And I learned a lot as I started to look at these other religions. And so some of you younger people especially and if you go to college, you're going to hear this, you're arrogant for believing, you know, that you have the right way. Well, start looking at all the other ways, and very quickly you realize, no, it's not arrogant, it's true. Just the Bible itself, the miracle of God's word that we have, what was originally written uh, 2,000 years ago for the New Testament, older for the Old Testament, that it's consistent. I mean, just go through it, that it's logical and the great news. Compare this to every other religion and it is far and, a, far and away reasonable, but also life-giving. I, I did a little study. Buddhism, 7% of the world would claim to be Buddhist. Now, every religion defines you know, our problem of, as man, men and women, our problem differently. But the solution for a lot of them is pretty much the same. 
Buddhism, uh, here's their problem. The problem for them is desire. So the solution is to separate yourself from desire. So when you see all these Eastern meditation and things, they're trying to separate themselves from desire. And the conclusion in the end, if they do a good enough job, is they cease to exist. Does that sound good? <laughs> you know what I mean? God has actually given us desire. Uh, apples? God gave us apples. It's okay to desire an apple, sugar, sex. God gave us, he made that on purpose for one man and one woman within marriage, and it's awesome. Um, but God gave us that. He, that's not a bad desire. He gave us these desires and then right ways to fulfill these desires. And so the, the idea that desire is bad, well, God gave it to us. And then the solution is to separate yourself from desire and then cease to exist and become one with everything else. That sounds horrible. Uh, Islam, 20% of the world would claim to be Islam. Their problem, corruption. Uh, they wouldn't phrase it sin, I think, the way we do as Christians, but the problem is corruption and the solution is religious obedience. Following the rules. You know, doing all the right things. How about just a man on the street quiz? Go walking down. Hey, where are you going to go when you die? Well, if there's a heaven, I'm going to go there. Why? Most people will tell you because I'm a good person. Uh, my, my good deeds outweigh my bad. We have this kind of innate understanding or belief, not understanding because it's not true, that there's a scale and, and God, if there is one, is going to weigh our, goods and our, our good deeds and our bad deeds. And if our good outweighs our bad, then he's going to let us into heaven. That also would be a horrible way to live. There's no guarantee, right? You know, I, I mean, do you, do you keep a log? Oh, this was good. This was, you know, and then try and add them up. The truth, as we study scripture, is that the gospel is far and away above every other worldview, every other religion, and it's true. So even if you don't buy into it's better, it's true, but it is better. And we're going to see in this sermon today, Paul comparing biblical faith with Judaism, and I think we can make that comparison with any other worldview as well. So turn to Acts 13, if you would. Acts 13, we're going to start in verse 13. Now, if you remember, this is Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, they go on a trip, and, and they're, they don't go real far on this first missionary journey. Their first stop was uh, an island that Barnabas was from. Now they move on to a place called Pisidia. I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga, and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, 
a man after my own heart who, who, who will do all my will. We're, we're going to stop there real quick. Paul and Barnabas, they go to this new town. It's a Greek area. And where do they go first? They go to the synagogue. That's interesting. Why would they go to the synagogue? When you read the Old Testament, you don't see a synagogue. You see Jerusalem. You see the temple. But when the Jews were conquered by Babylon and later Persia, they were dispersed. They were taken out of their land because they broke God's covenant. They were taken out of their land and dispersed. Well, they still, many wanted to follow Yahweh, the one true God, but they weren't in Jerusalem anymore, so they set up synagogues. And so that's what this is. This is a, it's basically a Jewish church. There are still synagogues today. But why would Paul go there first? Well, I think it's important to note that the Jews had the right religion. God chose Israel as his people. He gave them Moses, who gave them the law. He gave them prophets. They were God's people. This is why I don't understand anti-Semitism from Christians. How could that ever make sense? Because our Lord Jesus was Jewish. He was the Jewish Messiah. So everything they believed really in this first century as they looked at their Old Testament, what they just called the scriptures, was true. They were God's people. So a Christian really is a completed Jew. And we're going to see in the next few weeks a battle about that because the Jews knew, the Jews that believed in Jesus, Messianic Jews, uh, they were now Christians. And then there was this conflict. Wait, these Gentiles, they're getting saved. They need to become Jews. And that became a, a conflict within the church that we'll talk about in the next couple weeks. But it makes sense because a Christian really is a completed Jew. So it makes sense that Paul would go to the Jews first and God fears, if you notice that here, there are others who believe in the Jewish God, Yahweh, who are going to the synagogue and worshiping, and he's speaking to all of them, saying, we have the truth for you, because for them, they would start to understand. And this is important for us. This is in your notes. Our Christian story begins with the Israelites. God chose the nation of Israel as his people, gave them the prophets, the scriptures, and made eternal promises to them. And it's in the Old Testament, in these promises or covenants that God made that we see his plan leading to Jesus, leading to the church and what we have now as, you know, modern Christianity based on scripture. Look at verse 22. It says, and when he had removed him, that is Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified. And he said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. You know, Paul just kind of sped through hundreds and hundreds of years of history, and then he stops right here real quick. He does a little pause. David, why? David was the first good king of Israel. There was Saul, who was the king, but he, he strayed from God's way. God got rid of him and raised up David, a man after his own heart, and he made some promises to David. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And so here, that's probably, well, that is what he's referring to as these promises. This one would be found in 2 Samuel 7, 12, where God speaks to David and he says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. This promise, and it's articulated elsewhere, was that God would set up an heir of David to be king forever an eternal kingdom. And here, Paul is saying, remember that promise, and you've all been waiting for this king, for this Messiah. You think it's political. He came, and his name is Jesus. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to King David. But they missed it. In large part, they missed it because Jesus didn't come the way they thought he was going to come. The Messiah they thought was going to come as king in power to rule. He came, for, and he's going to come back as that. But he had to come first as a suffering servant. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. These Jews in Jerusalem, unwittingly, not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, fulfilled their own scriptures by killing him. Biblical Christianity has a historical accuracy and consistency that no other religion comes close to. Here's why I want us to notice that Paul is spending a lot of time looking at these Old Testament promises, referring to these prophets, because now when Jesus came, they didn't recognize him. Some would say Christianity, and if you go to a public college, they're going to teach you this if you take any kind of religion course, that Christianity formed in the first century was just an amalgamation of the other beliefs of the day. That, that Christians took some beliefs from here, some things from here, you know, some th stuff about Zeus, all this, and just put it together. The truth is, when you really look at it, Christianity, yeah, it started in the first century because that's when Jesus came, but it really started with Moses, really with Abraham. I mean, we can trace it all the way back. God's plan from the very beginning is consistent throughout. And so Christianity wasn't a new thing, boom, in the first century. It was the completion of God's promises to the Jews that Jesus came. This was God's plan from the beginning. I mean, just look at the miracles that happened around Jesus' life uh, and even things in the stars and the heavens and all this stuff. God had a plan when he spoke the world into existence in Genesis 1 that Jesus, his son, would come to do what he was going to do to give us life. The plan was from the beginning. Now, it says here, what we just read, that they fulfilled their own scriptures not on purpose. What is he referring to? Probably Isaiah 53.5 and many others. But in Isaiah 53.5, it says this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Is that not a perfect way of phrasing what Jesus did? This was written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. God's plan was to send his Messiah to be the suffering servant first. But what Paul is saying is the Jews there in Jerusalem, the leaders, they missed it and they killed him. But guess what? That was God's plan from the beginning. And here's the good news too. And you see God's grace. That early church in Jerusalem was made up of many of those Jews. The Pharisees that Jesus always kind of seems to be against, many of those were converted. They got it, and they followed him not, of course, many did not, but many did. Now look on, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead, 
And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Again, this is significant for us. We have to believe not only that Jesus died on the cross, but that he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. Remember, the author of Acts is Luke. Uh, Luke is going to be one of Paul's traveling companions. Luke is going to be close to Peter at times. Luke writes uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke was a historian, a doctor, a researcher. So he is writing for the purpose of people seeing, examining, and believing. And what does he say here? He rose from the dead, and the first thing he says, many people saw him. Jesus appeared at one point to 400 people at one time. Why is this always part of that message? He rose from the dead and many saw him. For 40 days, he appeared to the disciples over and over and over and over and over. Why? So these people here that he's talking to can pick up the phone and call Jerusalem. <laughs> they didn't have a phone, but they, they can get a hold and, and say, hey, is this true what we're hearing? And hundreds will say, yep, we saw him. This happened. And in that day and age, around that area, everybody knew it happened. In fact, they had to set up lies that the disciples stole the body because it disappeared and they couldn't find it. Well, he appeared to many. This is significant. Our faith is based on eyewitness testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus rose from the dead. And this sets true biblical Christianity apart from every other religion. This great miracle happened, the core, and many, many saw it. And then it was written down. And it was written down while those people were still alive. So it could be tested. And we have so many ancient copies. We believe, we know that what we have here is what was originally written then. Meaning we can trace it all back. When it was written, it was true. Eyewitnesses, we can believe it now. Let's compare this to just one very recent religion. The Mormons, right? They take this. Joseph Smith is their prophet. He's, he found the gold tablets that he dug up in his backyard. He's the only one that saw them. He looked under a tarp, you know, under a blanket, and he translated them for nobody else. Saw, and then an angel brought them up into That's not how God works. God doesn't work. That's the way God would work if he wants it really to not be believable. Instead, Jesus appears, here I am, and for 40 days appears and talks and teaches. He rose from the dead. This is huge. Eyewitness evidence. And now 32 to 37, he's going to kind of dig into this idea that Jesus rose from the dead, meaning he didn't decay in the grave, 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and secure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, that means died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. What's the whole point in this? Jesus did not decay. David did. Moses did. I mean, all these heroes of the Jewish faith died buried in the grave, and decayed. Now, they will be raised spiritually there with God now, and they will be raised in the end too. But they saw corrupt. Jesus did not. He died, and before he had time to decay in the grave, he rose from the dead. That's his whole point here. Verse 38. 
Now we're going to see really the, the core of this message and what sets biblical Christianity apart from every other religion. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed. That's man's problem. And women's. And girls. And boys. Every human that ever has lived, the problem is sin. And the Jewish faith agrees with the Christian faith, the problem is sin. This is in your notes. The Jewish faith agrees with the Christian faith that our root problem is sin, and our greatest need is to be forgiven by God. And these first century Jews could not be confident in their forgiveness. God, in his sovereignty, called the nation of Israel, gave them the law of Moses, which was good. By the way, the law is good because the law teaches you how to walk right. But the law revealed their sin, but it couldn't fix their sin. Now, God gave them the sacrificial system so that they could temporarily cover over their sin, but only for a little while. They couldn't cover their sin permanently. So year by year by year, they would sacrifice for their sins. They would try and remember and confess and, and sacrifice and sacrifice, all pointing to the time when Jesus would come, when Jesus would die to be the perfect sacrifice. Because sin is the problem. And again, the Mosaic law is good. Be careful that we don't look at the Old Testament and say it's bad or say the law is bad. It is good, but now it's been fulfilled in Jesus. So what was the law of Moses for? Well, in Galatians, Paul says it this way. Galatians 3, 23 to 24, it'll be on the screen. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. What is he saying here? What's the point? The law was our guardian. That word guardian is sometimes translated tutor. Meaning the law, when God gave it to Moses, set up the standard. Here's what God expects. And here's the thing. We can't live up to it. We can see the standard, and we can try, but we will never, ever live up to God's standard. Anybody experienced that in their life? Which, great news, Jesus came to set us free from all that the Mosaic law could not set us free from. Uh, in Romans, Paul says it this way about the law. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet... If the law had not said, you shall not covet. So why is the law good? Because sin has been sin from the beginning. But ever sin without knowing it's sin? Maybe you've had a, a kid and they do something that was wrong and they didn't know it. And your job as a parent is to tell them that's wrong. Don't do it again. You're getting a spanking, you know, or whatever. That, that's the law. And so Paul here says, I, I didn't know what it would mean. What is coveting? You know, being jealous, seeing what somebody else has and wanting it. That's sin. But how would somebody know that's sin unless God said, hey, this is sin. I don't want you to live that way. And so the law came to set it out. Here's what I expect. And you won't be able to live up to it. But you should try really hard anyway. And that's what the law did, was gave them a way to try to compare. So that by the time Jesus came and he died on the cross, the light bulb would go on for them and go, I get it. 
I get it. I understand what you were doing this whole time. Because the law, it gave a, a way to temporarily atone for sin. In Leviticus chapter 4, um, this probably isn't a great chapter for your daily study, but go for it anyway. You know, go read Leviticus. But in the law, you see what God gives his people because he loves them. You're going to sin, and when you do, here's what you do about it. They would take a lamb. And as you read through Leviticus 4 and other places, it's, it's a little bit gruesome somewhat, but they would be going to Jerusalem to sacrifice. They would have a perfect lamb, unblemished, you know, a lamb or a goat, some, some little cute little animal that often would sleep in the house. And so imagine having your kids. My kids love animals. They got this little lamb that sleeps in their bed with them, whatever, you know, fluffy. And so fluffy is, and most often it would be a female because they're way more valuable, right? Um, they are because they can reproduce. The males can't reproduce. And so a female lamb can have more lambs. And so it's the most valuable, uh, not one with a limp, not one with a perfect one. They would take it to the temple. And as you read through Leviticus 4, a lot of times we get confused. We think that the priest is the one who killed the sacrifice, not for sin. For sin, starting at about age 12, the Jewish person would bring their lamb. They would squeeze it between their knees. They would grab its chin. They would pull it up, and they would cut its throat. And they did this every year. Little fluffy. <laughs> cut its throat. What would that tell you about sin every year? This is horrible. <laughs> sin is horrible. It's a big deal. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness of sins. They learned this. And then John, John the Baptist, who came before Jesus, John is, is sitting in the road one day with some of his disciples. Jesus comes walking down the road, and what does John say? John 1.29. It says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That should give you chills. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were trained. They knew sin sent people to hell. They were given the blood to sacrifice. And here now, imagine hearing that. Jesus is walking down the street. He is the Lamb of God. They, they would understand what that meant. Would take away the sin of the world. That's what he did on the cross. Through his blood, he sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. All who would believe in him. Hebrews 10 one through four elaborates on this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the, true, uh, the truth form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God's plan from the beginning. This is why biblical Christianity is so consistent. You have to go back to the Jews. You have to go back to Israel and see how God set it up. And this is super cool. When Jesus died on the cross, read the Gospels. He's on the cross. He breathes his last. He says, Father, forgive them. Uh, they don't know what they do. You know, he gives up his spirit. It's darkened for the afternoon. An earthquake hits in the temple, the, the place where they would sacrifice. In the Holy of Holies, the direct access to God, only the chief priest could go in once a year, separated by a curtain about six inches thick. Earthquake happens, and that curtain is ripped in half. Impossible. God is saying, this method of coming to me is done. 
Now it's completed in Jesus. And Jesus, the week before he was killed, we're going to, you know, Easter's coming up. Passion week. He's walking through Jerusalem the week before he dies, and he's looking at the temple saying, this isn't going to last. This is going to be torn down. Not one stone is going to be left on another. In AD 70, the Romans came in Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They burned it. It was so hot, the gold in the temple melted and seeped into all the cracks between the stones. So to get all that gold, they tore it apart. Every single stone to get at the gold. So what Jesus predicted came true. Why? Because the temple's not needed anymore. It was a picture, what we see here in Hebrews. It was a picture of what's to come. Now Jesus came, and it's complete. I get into this. You see how consistent God is? You see how consistent from beginning to end and how it makes sense. No other religion can claim this. None. None can back it up with Scripture. We have copies of the Old Testament, 850 years older than Muhammad. You know, Muhammad came and studied the Quran and those things. They don't have what we have. Now, here's what I want to focus on, verse 39. I love this. Verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, remember, the law of Moses was good. And it served a purpose, but we are now free in Christ. What does that mean? That word free is also the word justified. So in Greek, sometimes, you know, you have words translated different ways. This word is translated sometimes freed, sometimes righteous, sometimes justified. It means a legal declaration of innocence. It means an acquittal. That's what this means. You have been freed. You know, again, we think free... And it's true, we are free, but it's, it's more of a, a legal justification. And if you're in a group, uh, we're going to talk about this in group this week. So group leaders, uh, study justification, sanctification, and glorification before group this week. Um, but that's what we're looking at. Just, this is a, a deep theological term, justified. Being justified, no other religion can offer this, but God offers this justified. He will look at you and say, you are right, innocent, free. God, the perfect judge, will look at you and if you have placed what this says believes, if you have placed your faith in Jesus as Lord, he looks at you and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' righteousness. He sees Jesus' perfection. And so you are then justified, stamped, done. This is really good news. Justified. Meaning, we don't have to walk through life going, am I good enough? Oh, I did this bad thing. Have I lost my salvation? Am I, I got to measure it? No. Because he looks at you and says, yeah, you're messed up. You're a sinner. I know that. And so I sent my son Jesus to die for your sins, to pay the price, to set you free. The Mosaic law could not set somebody free. Jesus set us free. Done. Now, it's not freedom to sin. It's freedom to follow Jesus. It's freedom to be secure in our relationship with him. Here's some theological terms. When we are justified, we are set free from the penalty of sin because Jesus took it. You will not be judged for your sin because of Jesus. You are set free from the power of sin. We're given the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're said, walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So with, with the Holy Spirit in us, we actually have the power to walk rightly. But we, we stumble because we're not free from the presence of sin yet. That gets to glorification. Again, talk about this in group this week. Glorification is later. We will get new bodies like Jesus did. And the presence of sin will be taken out. Until then... We're in a street fight with our sin. That's just the way it is. But we're given the Holy Spirit to have victory. We're set free. 
The old covenant, the Mosaic law, gave the rules, but no way to keep them. Jesus gives some rules. Some are different. It's more the the heart of the law than the the letter of the law. And we still have law. We still have rules. But now we have the power to actually do them and the heart that wants to in this relationship with God. This is in your notes. The person who believes in Jesus is justified, permanently declared, righteous, forgiven, innocent. Yay. Yay. So, so why would there ever be a grumpy Christian? <laughs> you know what? I mean? Maybe you like me. You've had that day where you're driving down the road and you're like, God, we're California drivers. What, you know, whatever. Um, uh, Nevada drivers. Um, <laughs> You know what I mean? You're just grumpy. And maybe you've had those days where, like me, the light comes on. You're like, what do I have to be upset about? I'm acting horribly right here. And God's still looking at me going, I died for you. I love you. All things will work out for good in the end for you. Not everything's going to be good, but I'm going to work everything out for good. Joy. And that's what happens to these people who listen. As you look on uh, verse, I don't even know where we are anymore. <laughs> well, let, let's look at verse 40. It says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if, even if one tells you. Paul is quoting the prophet Habakkuk here, and he's giving a warning. Jesus died for the sins of the world. This is really good news, but here's the warning. If you don't believe, you will perish. And he's telling these people, you will perish if you do not believe. Universalism, not true. All roads lead to heaven, not true. Jesus is the only way to be saved. And so he gives them this warning. I'm telling you this, and it's the truth. Be warned, so you will not perish. And here's how it ends, verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. As you read on, we're not going to study it all, but the the whole city shows up the next week. Pretty cool. Well, verse 44, I am going to read it. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to life believed. So you see here, in the end, the Gentiles believe. And there's Jews who believed here as well. People believed, and there were those two different responses. Either they believed and were filled with joy, or they rejected it, and they were angry and jealous. Joy is the proper response. You know, this morning as I was reading this, I remembered uh, what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55. And I want you to hear this invitation. Again, this is hundreds of years before Jesus. God is so consistent. But this is his invitation to you. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. How can you buy without money? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. 
Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is his invitation. Jesus would say it another way. He would say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said the same thing that the prophet Isaiah said. Come, I'm going to give you everything you need for free. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you can be justified, secure. The only right response is joy. So as we move to worship, I want to hear you sing really loud. Joyful. Put the hands up. I know it feels weird. It's okay. The response is joy. We are free to have joy. Free. And if you're here and you don't know that freedom yet, I'm going to be back in the left corner. I want to pray with you. I want to talk with you. If you have questions about what this life is like, about how you can have life in Jesus, I'll be there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for justifying us. God, you are the perfect judge. And you look at us and you say, innocent, not because we're good enough. Not, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus did. God, this is so humbling. A proud Christian makes no sense. A grumpy Christian makes no sense. So I just ask that you would fill us with your joy as we understand your love, as we understand what you've done for us, what you've given to us freely. Set us free from ourselves, from our anxiety, from our stress, from our grumpiness, whatever it is. Set us free and fill us with your joy. And Holy Spirit, I ask if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you yet, that they would see this and say, yes, not only is this true, but it's the best news we could ever receive. We've been given this word of salvation, and I ask that they would surrender to you this morning, that they would believe, Jesus, you died on the cross. They would believe you rose from the dead, and they would say yes to you, that they would give their lives to you as Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.